The Sydney Festival podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and those who are yet to emerge, and thank them for their wisdom. For 45 years, Sydney Festival has brought you bold performance, cultural celebrations, art, and big ideas to our sticky Sydney summers. I'm Wesley Enoch, the Artistic Director of Sydney Festival 2021. Our program this year is called Australian Made, and it's mostly about recovering after the year we've had. But it's also about connecting with our community, about reinvigorating our incredible local art scene, and to remind us of how resilient we really are. So let's get started. Hello, I'm Kate Gall. I'm the director of HMS Pinafore, which is sailing the high seas at Parramatta Riverside for Sydney Festival 2021. G'day, Kate. Welcome back. How are you? Thanks, Wesley. I'm great. <laughs> great to be chatting. It's one of those things you go, we're, we're recording this at a time when we don't know what will happen and there's a kind yes. of a lot of in and out at the moment, but um, I think that we should be radically optimistic about everything at the moment. I like to think I'm a very optimistic person and, uh, yes, this is testing us, Wesley, but we will rise. Yeah, and I think too that audiences, it's its interesting as you go to theatres and people are, are still turning up and they're doing it in a very safe way with masks and socially distanced and hand sanitizers. you go, we can find a COVID normal as we go forward as well. I mean, y- y- you've been affected by COVID, even this production, HMS Pinafore, you were on tour and it kind of basically ended and... We finished the tour of the night before the lockdown. So we actually completed our tour at the beginning of the of the year. So in uh, 2019, we played in Sydney, had a Christmas break, and then went on a New South Wales tour and closed, I think, on March 12. It was incredible. Tell us a little bit about HMS Pinafore. I mean, I know it as a creaky old Gilbert and Sullivan piece. Poor old Gilbert and Sullivan are often thought of as creaky. They certainly are the bastion of, I guess, community and amateur theatre. And, you know, obviously that's the place where you can get a cast of thousands, you can get your whole town involved um, because there's always heaps of room for massive choruses. Um, And I think Gilbert and Sullivan really wrote for um, amateur performers. Um, I think one of their innovations was, in fact, to have a lot of difference on stage and to have it really quirky. So that's what people think it is. And then sometimes it gets taken over by opera companies and it's put on in a very grand scale, again, with large choruses and very shiny costumes and pitch-perfect music and big orchestras. And although that is beautiful, I think what it often misses there is that sort of slight roughness around the edge, which I think lends itself very well to Gilbert and Sullivan, where the music and the lyrics are absolutely divine. So they really hold, you know, perhaps some sort of slightly quirky performance styles. And I think that's what's fed our production in and supported that really well. Uh, I know I know Gilbert and Sullivan, like, like very technical um, uh, lyrics though, you know, the, some, of the, some of the songs you go, goodness gracious, you have to be very dexterous to kind of get through all that. But it is almost like um, singing, talking at times as well. Yeah, look, there's lots of different styles. The lyrics are absolute tongue twisters and it's really, really funny every time we audition a new person to come into the production, we always go, I wonder if they know the words because you think you know them at home and you get them up and the piano starts playing and all of a sudden your mouth goes, ah, I can't do it. So the tongue twistery language is obviously part of its beauty, but it's um, 
I guess it's light opera or operetta. So it does require some of the singers, mainly the principal roles, to have really strong opera chops. Um, but in our production, we have our opera singers, music theatre performers can also do it, and then actors in more character roles, which can be more speak singy. And so there's lots of roles where you don't really have to be as great as an opera singer. You need to be musical, but you can, like the patter songs, for example, are more about the beautiful stories that they tell through 12 verses, um, you know, with earwormy music that gets stuck in your head for years. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your production then. You were saying already that it, it lends itself, its rough edges to some quirky performances and some different interpretations. What are you doing to HMS Pinafore as the director? Okay, I guess I guess I would say it's irreverent, um, but I think Gilbert and Sullivan were always irreverent to some extent. And the real challenge, I think, for a director taking a classic work from the 1800s into the 21st century is to say, well, how can we make it feel for our audience today like it would have felt back in 1878? So the collision of the 21st century and the 19th century is kind of what I wanted to explore in the classic. Um, and by reducing the cast to 12 on stage, so it's very chamber size, um, by gender swapping some of the roles and rethinking how the music was delivered, opened up lots of creative doors for us to explore. Now, it's not new in opera for men to play women and women to play men, but of course, the music in Gil Gilbert and Sullivan is written for certain voice types. But we have a woman playing Rafe Rackstraw, who's our male lead. And Tom Campbell plays Little Buttercup, who is one of the female character roles. So then you go, okay, right. So then Rafe uh, being played by a woman, which we never comment on. He's uh, just played by Billy Palin, uh, falls in love or is in love with um, Josephine Corcoran, the captain's daughter. Uh, and then Little Buttercup ends up with the captain. Spoiler alert, but I think everybody knows the stories of Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, and, of course, Sir Joseph Porter, who's arrived on board ship to marry Josephine, ends up with some of the other women in the chorus. Um, so then all of a sudden you have all these same-sex or different pairings, um, same-sex pairings, heterosexual pairings, and I'm thinking, oh, well, this is, uh, we made the show, I guess, in the shadow of the changes to the Marriage Act in Australia. So it has a deeper resonance on that level, but we never comment on it. It's just there for the audience. We definitely play with the, all, all of the themes of class and class struggle, which is deeply embedded into Gilbert and Sullivan. But I guess the question of the show is, does love level all ranks? And that seemed to be a very appropriate question to be asking. And love is love is a real theme of the piece. I guess at the end of a traditional Gilbert and Sullivan show, they would drop a British flag and there'd be enormous flag wavings and a huge celebration. So we subvert that. And I think this is uh, something that audiences responded to really positively. Um, I won't tell you exactly what happens at the end, but we do end with a semaphore dance, I guess, to end the show where the characters, the actors spell out love is love, reinforcing that no struggle is entirely over. I think it really does send a message to everybody in the audience and certainly it's a great show-stopping moment, but it goes completely opposite the way that you would normally um, do a Gilbert and Sullivan. So I'm sort of quite proud of that, that that's worked. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, I think too that this maybe answers the question already, this idea of why do this kind of um, 1800s musical today, why do we want to go back to classic plays like this? I think the only way to do it is to find 
the thing that really speaks to you today and then hopefully to broad audiences. But I guess at a more traditional way of looking at things, going back to classics is going back to things that actually work, really sort of like encountering this music, encountering these lyrics, encountering these incredible sort of political struggles that are deeply embedded into this, what we think of as a piece of fluff is actually really challenging. I mean, if you stick to it and really, it'll probably make you better performers and it makes me a better director. Um, I think that, you know, old ways always have new lessons to teach us. But I think importantly, find out what it says to you personally and then try to make that sort of extant on the stage and hopefully it will speak to others as well. Yeah, and I, look, um, I think too that the classics as you say, have always, uh, when they're well-structured, they can actually survive this kind of twisting and turning and finding new new energies in it too, to say, to talk to our contemporary society that doesn't, it doesn't falter that way. It, they are pretty um, robust. It's very hard to break them. Um, yeah, I think have a reason to do anything, as we say in life, really. Kate, you've been a director, I'm going to say for Oh, over three decades. Yeah, a long well, time. Uh, you should feel really yeah, proud about that. I've, been, I've certainly worked in the theatre all my life. Um, yeah, and I have been directing. And, you know, I, Wesley, I'm pretty sure that you'll be looking forward to getting back to some directing yourself. Um, look, you do get better with age and it's it's exciting. I, I find the prospect of directing a really exciting one. Well, when you think about Kate Gall 30-something years ago when you were directing... Um, what 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 what's the difference now? Who was that Kate Gall to this Kate Gall now in terms of age, and what what are the big differences for you? I look back on the things that I was attempting then, and look, I, I don't think they have changed that much. But now I have more knowledge about how to achieve it and to achieve a very light touch. This is my ultimate quest, is to be a late Monet. I just want to have the lightest of touch, <laughs> but to have absolutely hit every note. <laughs> I think now uh, that I, I know how to achieve those things earlier, so then you can take all that sound and fury away and have something much lighter. But I love this 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 notion of the lightest touch that you're talking about, but you're hitting every note. There's then there's a conversation about nuance and subtlety then. But and HMS Pinafore is full of big concepts, I think. Do, did you come up with those as the director? Did you go, I see this? Or was it uh, as much a kind of collaborative starting point? I saw it very clearly. I, I sort of understood where it would go. And look, the realities of directing in Sydney right now is you have so little rehearsal time that you need to be pretty clear on where you're going to end up, even if you're not sure how you're going to get there. And if that's the, what the rehearsal process is about, I had a few ideas and you just have to try them. But then I rely on the 12 people on stage and everybody else supporting the production to come in and feed into those ideas. In terms of how we delivered the music, that was very open. We cast the play, myself and the music director, Zara Stanton, cast, and then we went, okay, let's see if anybody has any musical instruments to what we call a professional standard wasn't a deal breaker but yes we found that singers often do play musical instruments so then we were able to think about the delivery of the music in a particular way 
whereas perhaps we'd started off thinking about something very simple. Um, so it grew in complexity, really, and that was the fun of playing. Oh, what could we do in this scene? Oh, get that guitar. Let's see how that might work here. And, of course, every time we have a cast change, somebody brings in a different instrument. So that keeps it really lively. When you describe the production to others, how do you describe it? What, what adjectives do you use to explain what this production of HMS Pinafore is? Um, romantic, very silly. Uh, <laughs> it is very silly. The great thing about satire, it just shouldn't be taken too seriously. <laughs> and that's Gilbert and Sullivan. It is very silly. It's irreverent. It's funny and romantic. It feels like such a remedy for dark times. You know, it's a bit like going to see Midsummer Night's Dream. We know life's shit. We don't need to see that in the theatre. We can actually make it fun and like a dream that where everything works out well. I mean, I don't what you know, like nothing works out. Nothing should work out well because that's not really true. But you know what I'm saying? It's a it's a moment where you can, you know, um, drop balloons, wave flags, and go out humming. People were saying that uh, when we first opened in 2019, even before COVID. Um, that it was, if it was on, if you get it on Medicare, it would be a great solution to a lot of uh, challenges that people face. This notion of, um, you know, yes, we're in these COVID times, going to the theatre is very important, spending time with family. But this idea you're saying also about mental health, that that the theatre can also play a role in creating that sense of uh, a stronger bond if, of community. What role do you think theatre plays in the mental health of a community? Certainly um, the community aspect of it, having permission to come together and engaging in the dreamscape for 80 minutes or 90 minutes. I think it's really important for people to be able to do that. And it's great that producers and theatres are finding ways where we can do it, um, whether it's five metres from the stage, wearing the masks. I don't think anybody you know, is worried about all of the sort of COVID safety measures as long as we can get into that room and hear the stories of others, have a moment of relief, um, empathise with other stories, imagine other worlds, be able to hum along to a tune. How fantastic is that? And it's quite strange going to the theatre with all the empty seats around you, um, but, you know, we are very adaptable as a species. We will get used to things and we will find ways of making that work and we'll find ways of making those connections as strong as they ever were. Mm. I'm going to ask a political question now. This notion of, well, gender, not even gender fluidity, the idea of not seeing gender in roles and therefore seeing different forms of relationships um, and also the idea then of uh, uh, women's roles in making positions. I mean, you're, you've been a strong advocate for women artists being in making positions. Again, what's changed in your career, do you think, or has it not changed at all and we need to change some further? I see change, but I don't see enough of it. I see more women directing and being in creative roles, but if you look at, them, look at it globally, it's still at a very small scale. The structures that allow women into particular areas of the arts are still very dominated by the old ways. You know, it's a slow wheel to turn. I have reflected on this. I know when I started directing professionally, I was often the only woman, only woman in a program, and that was for many years. And I, I mean, I didn't have to talk about it. It was obvious. Um, it was very hard to see uh, women playwrights work on the stage and that was really one of the reasons I kept Siren going was to do plays of 
even Carol Churchill for crying out loud, just of some voices that perhaps we wouldn't hear in the mainstream. And that's fine. I mean, the whole scene is made up of many voices and that's great. I definitely see all of that's changed now. And there's a real uh, spotlight on inclusion and diversity. And I see it starting at the grassroots levels of drama schools, which of course is fantastic. I just think it's going to be a long, long journey. My feeling too is uh, those who have been disempowered often through the old systems, the old ways, if you put us in charge, you know, in this case, an Aboriginal director or a woman uh, director of a festival or a company, I think change happens faster. Uh, Would you agree? Yeah, I know. Give people a go. You know what? A festival is not going to fall over, okay? The festival will exist. Someone will come in and colour it in their way. They're going to be really supported and celebrated because, you know what, there's a whole bunch of people behind you who aren't heard who are going, yeah, go, Wesley, go, Wesley, tell our stories, get us on stage, get us out there. You're, you find those people all come out from behind the bushes, you know, and uh, you get a moment, you get your three years where you get to really investigate and explore that part of the community and your, your wider audience feels the imprimatur of, let's say, the Sydney Festival, um, for example, go, okay, well, this feels like it's going to be good. I'll go along and see this. Um, it has more access. You have more access. Well, the question then is, what are you going to do next, do you think? I want to do more Australian work. I think that COVID has brought the spotlight back onto uh, me in this country, if you if you like, and definitely developing and working with those more perhaps marginalised voices in the playwriting community. I just feel it's a time now to look into our own backyard more. Yeah, I try not to take too much shit from people, um, remain true to myself, and, you know, we will find our audience. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I've been talking to Kate Gall, who's the director of Siren Theatre and the director of HMS Pinafore, which is playing at Parramatta's Riverside throughout Sydney Festival. Thanks, Kate. Thank you so much for talking with me. Wesley, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on Sydney Festival, head to sydneyfestival.org.au and be sure to subscribe to the Sydney Festival channel wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.